These are hard teachings that challenge every single person in the audience. So how does Jesus end this sermon? Does he kind of take his foot off the, the gas a little bit? Maybe, maybe end with an uplifting story so that everybody can go home with a smile? And he pretty much does the exact opposite. Right? He ends the sermon with, with these two word pictures, one of two trees and the other of two builders. Uh, two word pictures that would divide his audience into two groups. Some of you are, are good trees. Some of you are bad trees. Some of you are wise builders. Some of you are foolish builders. Some of you are true disciples. And some of you are on your way to hell. It's not exactly the best way to end a sermon if you're just looking for popularity or you're just looking for likes. But that's obviously not what Jesus was going for. And so let's read the text now, Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 49, and then we're going to talk about what it means and how it might apply to our lives. So Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 49, this is God's holy word. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Charles Spurgeon once compared a sermon without illustrations to a house without windows. Windows in a house are important, right, for letting in light, and that's exactly what illustrations do in a sermon, right? They illuminate, they make clear the subject matter, which do you realize Spurgeon gave an illustration to illustrate his point about illustrations, Man was a genius. But I say that to say that Jesus probably would have agreed with Spurgeon about the importance of illustrations, or maybe we should say Spurgeon is agreeing with Jesus, because Jesus was like the master of illustrations. We saw it last week. He's making a point about hypocrisy, and so he illustrates it with the speck and the plank. Or a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus use an illustration about doctors an illness, to make his point about why he came. Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or you remember the time when Jesus gave Peter that great catch of fish, and then he used what just happened to illustrate Peter's new calling. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus was 
the master of illustrations. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that here, as Jesus is finishing up his Sermon on the Plain, he finishes with two illustrations, two word pictures that his audience would be able to easily envision and would remember long after Jesus was done speaking. And he's giving those illustrations in order that he might drive home his point here at the very end of his sermon. So our outline this morning is pretty straightforward. We're just going to look at these two illustrations one at a time. Point number one, so illustration number one, we're going to look at the fruit in verses 43 through 45. And then point number two, illustration number two, we're going to look at the foundations in verses 46 to 49. So fruit and foundations. A sermon without alliteration is like a house without a swimming pool. You don't need it, but it's awfully fun to have one. That's not Spurgeon. That's, that's Harry Fujiwara. Point number one, illustration number one, fruit. And the illustration is pretty straightforward, or at least it's supposed to be pretty straightforward. I think Jesus' original audience would have immediately understood it, would have immediately seen the word pictures living in the agricultural society that they did. And for us, living in New York City in the 21st century, like honestly, like I'm reading this, figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. I don't know what a fig tree looks like. I know what a fig Newton looks like. I don't know what a fig tree looks like. But even if we're lost on the specifics, right? Even if we don't exactly picture what a bramble is or what a fig tree looks like, I think we still get the main point. Suppose you have a tree and you want to know what kind of tree that tree is. What do you do? You look at the fruit that it produces. If it produces apples, it's an apple tree. If it produces oranges, it's an orange tree. If it produces figs, then it's a fig tree. That's because figs grow on fig trees. And so you would not, right, Jesus' words, gather figs from thorn bushes. And grapes grow on grapevines, and so you would not gather grapes from bramble bushes. Verse 44, for each tree is known by its own fruit. The point of the illustration, of course, is that people are like trees, Just like no good tree bears bad fruit and no bad tree bears good fruit, so, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Now, when Jesus says good person there, obviously he's not talking about inherent absolute goodness, because as he would later say, no one is good except God alone. And so good person in that kind of specific sense is an oxymoron because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now when he refers to the good person there, he's referring to true disciples. The true disciples who see that they're not good, who see themselves as spiritually poor and spiritually hungry, as he mentioned earlier in the sermon, who recognize that they're desperate and hopeless sinners in need of a Savior, but disciples who then look to Jesus as that Savior, as the one who has authority to forgive sin, as the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. Such disciples, well, they've been given a new heart, 
new eyes to see these truths, and so they're new creations of God, right? That's the kind of person that he's referring to here, the good person. It's the person who has been changed by God through the gospel. So what does that good person produce? Well, out of the good treasure, right, the word means storehouse, out of the storehouse of his heart, he produces good in his words and his actions. And know how Jesus specifically gives the example of words. Look at the end of verse 45. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so thinking about the context of everything that he said in this Sermon on the Plain, what is that good? What does it look like? Well, it's loving your enemies. It's doing good to those who hate you. It's being merciful. All coming out of a heart that has already been transformed by God's mercy. And since out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, well, that kind of heart is going to manifest itself specifically through words, not words of critical judging and harsh condemning and hypocrisy, but words of gracious forgiveness and merciful charity, words of blessing for those who curse you, and words of prayer for those who would abuse you. All of that coming out of the abundance of the storehouse of the true disciple's heart. This is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures, this biblical teaching that believers, those who have had their hearts transformed by God, will then do good works. Not as the basis for their salvation, not in order to earn their salvation, but as a result of their salvation. And throughout the Bible, you'll see those good works referred to as fruit. And we saw it earlier in this gospel with John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then the next verse, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Philippians 1, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And perhaps most famously, Galatians chapter 5, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Good trees produce good fruit. And so true disciples produce the good fruit of good works. Now on the flip side, the evil person, so again in the context of this sermon, he's referring to one who is not a true disciple— one who has not had their heart transformed by Jesus, well, such an evil person, out of his evil treasure, the storehouse of evil that's in his heart, well, this person produces evil. But here's where we need to be careful, because we see this contrast between good and evil, and we need to realize this is not like picking your favorite baseball team, right, where you have the option of being a Mets fan or a Yankees fan. And then there's the third option of, I just don't really care about baseball. Good person, evil person, good tree, bad tree. There, there is no third option. Right? There is no, I don't care about baseball. There is no neutral tree. We are neither good nor evil. Now, all people fall into one of those two categories. And here's the thing. The default state 
the default state of humanity, according to the Bible, is to be an evil person. We're all descended from Adam and Eve, and because of their sin, eating of the tree that God told them not to eat from, because their sin has been passed down to us, because we're their descendants, each one of us is born with a sin nature. And so each one of us is born as an evil person. Like our default state is evil person. It's only as God saves us through the gospel. God transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Then we move from the category of evil person to good person, from enemy of God to child of God, from being under woe to being under blessing. So good trees, bad trees, good people, evil people. Why does Jesus bring any of this up? Well, think back to last week. You remember how Jesus was talking about the speck and the log, and he's calling his disciples to self-examination so as to not be hypocrites. Well, this tree illustration is really just an extension of that same idea. It's a call for the disciple to examine themselves. As you look at the fruit of your life, as you look at your actions and deeds and words and thoughts over a prolonged period of time, like, what do you see? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Do you see faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love? And I'm getting those from Second Peter chapter 1. And Peter says in the very next verse, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Or do you see what Paul would refer to as the works of the flesh? Right before he gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us what the works of the flesh look like, and it's not pretty. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Jesus, as he's addressing this crowd, this great multitude who have gathered before him, as he looks out on his audience, he knows that he's got a mixed orchard, so to speak, of good trees and bad trees. It's a mix. And as I think about you all, I know some of you are good trees. Some of you are bad trees. Right? We've got a, a mixed audience. Now, I don't necessarily know where each of you stands individually, and I'm ultimately not the judge of your soul. But I know that in the crowd this size, right, coming from all over the place, there's inevitably going to be a mix of good trees and bad trees, right, of true disciples and false disciples. And so let me ask you, as you just honestly and candidly assess your own life, what do you see? What, what kind of fruit is your life producing? Don't make the mistake of just taking a really small sample size, like one day, one reaction, one conversation. Look at your life over a prolonged period. Is my life overall characterized by good fruit? 
Now, that's not to say that believers will produce perfect fruit all the time. No, fig trees produce figs, but that doesn't mean that every fig is going to always be perfect and sweet and wonderful. No, some figs are not as sweet or as ripe as others. And there are some seasons in which the fruit is more abounding and some seasons in which the fruit perhaps is less. And not every tree is going to produce the same exact harvest. Jesus says it himself. Some trees will produce a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. But at the end of the day, what do fig trees produce? Fig trees produce figs. Sometimes it's a lot of figs. Sometimes it's not as many. But fig trees produce figs. With a glaring, consistent absence of figs, you cannot credibly claim to be a fig tree. Well, in the same way, with a glaring, consistent absence of good spiritual fruit as the scriptures describe it, you cannot credibly claim to be a Christian. It doesn't matter if you've had an experience when you were younger. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you're a member of a church. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're an elder or a deacon or you're on the music team or what. If your life is consistently over a period of time, characterized by bad fruit and a lack of good fruit, we'll listen to Jesus' words. Each tree is known by its own fruit. But here's the key I don't want you to miss. If you do see this consistent trend of bad fruit and this consistent lack of good fruit, you see, the problem isn't so much the fruit. The problem is the tree, And so what you need to do is you don't need to address the problem on the fruit level as much as you need to address the problem at the tree level. So suppose you come to the realization that you're an unbeliever. You're not a Christian. You're not a true disciple because you look at the lack of fruit in your life. You look at the the presence of, of all the evil fruits, right, that the scriptures talk about in your life, and you come to the conclusion that you are not a Christian. And you're particularly convicted, perhaps, about, uh, well, I'm just not a loving person. Well, the solution is not first and foremost to then go and try to love other people more, any more than the solution to a thorn bush not producing figs is to, like, duct tape figs to the thorn bush. The solution is not to try to do Christian things in order to become a Christian. No, what's needed is a, is a wholesale change. A wholesale change in nature. My wife told me a story last night about a sister in this church who shall remain nameless. She apparently went to the store and purchased a plant and brought it home and watered it. And she diligently watered it for a week until she realized it was a fake plant. Now, I'm not a botanist. But I do know this. I know this one thing. You can give all the water you want to a fake plant. Like, you can treat the fake plant as if it were real. You can give it sun. You can give it water. You can give it nutrients. But at the end of the day, like, unless there's a wholesale change in the nature of what you have in front of you, it's not going to make any difference. It's not going to grow. In the same way, if you are not a Christian, you can try to modify behaviors You can try to live out biblical commands. You can try to do what Christians do. But unless there is a wholesale change 
in which God replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, there's not going to be any lasting or significant change. You're just watering a fake plant. What you need is to believe the gospel. Now, maybe you've heard the gospel hundreds of times, but the fact that your life is marked and characterized by bad fruit and no good fruit is proof that in spite of the fact that you've heard it a hundred times, and maybe you can present it better and more clearly than some Christians can, well, it's never actually transformed your heart. Well, if that's you, I invite you to consider the gospel anew right now. Consider that what you need is not just more moralism or to do better or to stop sinning. Now, what you need is to be born again. And the only way that happens is if God the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart so that you repent, turning away from your sin and turning towards God. And you believe, you, you trust in Jesus that what he did on the cross for sinners like you, dying in your place and taking your punishment, that you might be forgiven, and then rising again from the dead, that you might be justified. And so I say to you, repent and believe. Be saved today. What you need is a wholesale transformation. No matter how, how hard a, a thorn bush tries to produce figs, no matter how hard a thorn bush tries to become a fig tree, it can't. Someone has to come and replace the thorn bush entirely with a fig tree. Right? But that's what God does. That's a picture of what God does. He makes us into an entirely new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if and only if God grants you that new heart, well, now you've got this new treasure house, this new storehouse in your heart. And out of that will flow good works. Out of that will flow the good fruit that characterizes the good tree. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Point number one. Illustration number one. Fruit. Which brings us to point number two. Illustration number two foundations. So let's start with the word picture here. The, the word picture, the illustration, is that of building a house. Uh, you've got two builders, and in the Gospel of Matthew, right in the Sermon on the Mount, these two guys are referred to as the wise builder and the foolish builder. Uh, here in Luke, that's unstated but implied. So you've got this wise builder. He finds a place with a solid foundation of rock underneath and then he look at verse 48, he dug deep. In Greek, it's, it's two verbs, right? It's he dug and he dug deeper, uh, really emphasizing this intense labor of digging. And it's only once he gets down to the foundation, right, the bedrock, and he lays the foundation there, well, only then does he begin to build the house above it. And so it's this involved and laborious and time-consuming process he exercises great care and great diligence. In contrast, you've got this foolish builder, and he's also trying to build a house, but he's got no foundation. He doesn't bother digging and then digging deeper. He just puts the house up. You can imagine his project is just a lot easier than the other guy's. 
looking at the other guy and thinking, why is that guy wasting his time? And all is well for both guys. All is well for both houses. Until one day, there's these heavy rains, which wouldn't have been uncommon in that region. Heavy rains, and so the the once dry creek beds quickly fill up, become violent streams that then would come crashing against the houses. And the house that was built on the foundation, it makes out totally fine because it's secure. It's grounded. It's firmly established on the rock. Verse 48, the stream broke out against the house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But then you've got the house with no foundations. Predictably, it's an absolute disaster. Verse 49, when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. So what's the meaning of this illustration? Well, the foundation obviously represents Jesus and his teachings. And the difference between these two builders is what they do in response to Jesus and his teachings. Verse 47, the wise builder, he's the one who comes to me and hears my word and does them. That's what James refers to as being doers of the word. To trust Jesus and to trust his word, to submit to his authority, to stake your eternity on who he is and what he said, and then to reflect that through a trust in, his, a trust in obedience to his commandments. That's precisely the kind of person that Jesus elsewhere acknowledges as being a true disciple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But verse 49, right, the foolish builder, this is the guy who hears but doesn't do them. That's what James would refer to as being hearers only. So this person is not a true disciple. This person doesn't love Jesus, and that's reflected in their not doing what he says. As Jesus said, John 14, 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. How do we know that you don't love him? You don't keep his words. That's the foolish builder. And so you'll notice both groups come, and both groups hear, And look at how Luke actually tells us, look back at verse 18, that the crowd that has gathered, they came to hear him. And so all kinds of people come, all kinds of people hear, but only true disciples, in contrast to false disciples, only true disciples do. Here's the thing. For a season, whether you're a hearer only, or you're a doer, for a season, whether you've built your house on a strong foundation or not, everything seems fine. It's 70 degrees, and it's sunny, and there's not a cloud in the sky. And so the two houses seem exactly the same. The two professing believers seem exactly the same. But then a storm comes, the rains come, the streams come, Maybe they come in the form of trials and tribulations in this life. Persecution, financial loss, health problems, death of a loved one, betrayal, loneliness, whatever it might be. But then there's also the ultimate flood, right? the ultimate storm, 
the one that's going to come after death, for it is appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. When those storms come, that's when the true disciple and the false disciple are separated. That's when the true disciple remains faithful, not because of their obedience to God's word, but because they are truly God's children. That they've placed their trust in one who cannot be shaken. We sang it earlier today. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And so he cannot be shaken. But when that storm comes, a similar storm, well, that's when the false disciple, who is a, a hearer only, that's when they fall away. And you see Jesus insert that word immediately. Right? Immediately it comes crashing down because he's got no true foundation. The fact that he was never a true disciple to begin with as evidenced by the fact that he doesn't do what Jesus says, well, that comes really clearly to light when the trials hit. But now, why does Jesus give this illustration? That's what the illustration means. Why does Jesus give it? The answer's back in verse 46. He gives this illustration as a warning, as a rebuke to the foolish builders who are in his audience. Verse 46, he is talking to some in his audience, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Not do what I tell you. And so this person clearly is linked with the foolish builder who hears but doesn't do. Now that's a problem in itself, as we just talked about, because their house is going to come crashing down. But an even bigger problem for this person in verse 46 is that in spite of their disobedience, They say the right things. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Lord, Lord. It's what's known as a double vocative. Like when you're speaking to someone and you repeat the name for emphasis. You see that all over the Bible, right? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones the ones who were sent to it. Or when he's on the cross, Jesus on the cross, he's bearing the wrath of God. My God, my God, quoting Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the Damascus Road, Jesus appears to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And so Lord, 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 Lord is not someone saying, yeah, I I like Jesus, I think I'm a Christian. No, this is an impassioned plea. It's a confession of Jesus as Lord. A kurios, right? A title that at least refers to his authority, if not in its full meaning, full reference, right? His deity. And so this person is saying, Jesus is my Lord. Lord, Lord. He's not talking here about people who just don't care about religious things. He's not talking to the nominal crowd that only goes to church twice a year. He's not talking about the Pharisees who would never call him Lord. He's talking to those who would claim to be disciples, like genuine disciples. Lord, Lord. Those who followed him, those who would pledge their allegiance to him, Those who would come every time that he preached, those in the audience for the Sermon on the Plain, who are carefully listening and agreeing with what Jesus is saying, but ultimately they don't do what he said. 
And so they say Christ is Lord. They say Christ is master, that Christ has authority over my life and I'm going to submit to that. But in reality, that's not true at all. He's not Lord in any meaningful sense of the word because they don't do what he says. Such people are a walking contradiction. You might be fooling yourself by passionately crying out, Lord, Lord. But Jesus' point here is that their fate is inevitable. Their judgment is clear. As those who are building on no foundation at all, their house is going to come crashing down. So you can fool yourself, you can fool others, but you can't fool the omniscient, omnipotent God who sees all who will judge your soul. And that's how the sermon ends. Look at that. The ruin of that house was great. I was thinking about that this week. It struck me that there were perhaps those gathered on that day, like when Jesus gave the sermon, for whom those words were the very last words that they ever heard from Jesus, at least in this life. The ruin of the house was great, and they think, how dare Jesus say that? And they stop following him entirely. Or the ruin of the house was very great, and they have no idea, in spite of the clear indicators from their own life, that they are not, in fact, doing what Jesus says. But they have no idea that Jesus is talking about them. And he's talking about their profession, Lord, Lord. Surely he's not talking about me. Point number two, illustration number two, foundation. Fruit, foundation, and thus ends the Sermon on the Plain. I'll give you three points of application. Application point number one is to examine yourself. If you have been a Christian for long enough, like if you have been in the church long enough, like as you read these illustrations that Jesus gives, like you know exactly what he's talking about. Because you've seen people come to the church and they seem to love the Lord and they say all the right things, Lord, Lord. And they come to the services and they come to the Bible studies and they hear and they hear and they hear. And for a time at least, they kind of fit right into the orchard as this self-proclaimed fruit-bearing tree. But time passes. And maybe what wasn't immediately apparent becomes clear and you begin to notice there's some glaring inconsistencies in that person's life. Well, they know what the word says, but that's pretty much all there is to it. Uh, they're not doers of the word. They don't humbly submit themselves to the word. And so despite outward professions, Lord, Lord, they don't actually do what Jesus says. They don't actually bear any good fruit. What inevitably happens? Well, some trial comes up. Some trouble arises in their life. Some conflict surfaces. And just as quickly as they burst onto the scene, they're gone. The house that, at least for a season, looked so solid and well-built that the first sign of trouble immediately comes crashing down. So again, if you've been a Christian for long enough, 
you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is so easy for us to think of examples of other people who fit this to a T. And we say, that person, that's who Jesus is talking about here. Maybe even right now you're thinking of that, that, that hypocritical, nominal believer that you know, and you're thinking, that's the person that Jesus is talking about. And that might be true. And there is, there is room for lovingly bringing that to that person's attention. But remember last week's sermon. First and foremost, before we look at others, we're called to examine ourselves. So application point number one, examine yourself. Take illustration number one, fruit. Ask yourself, what fruit am I bearing in my life? Is this current season, is it one of abundant harvest? Or if I'm honest, has the, the fruit kind of been meager? Am I growing in the fruit that I'm producing? Or maybe I've kind of settled into a, a state of complacency where I've got enough figs on this tree. I think I'm good. I think I'm all right. Or illustration number two, foundation. Am I building on the only true foundation there is? Christ and his word. Do I show that through my obedience to his word? Are there areas of my life that may not be visible to other people, but I know about them. Are there areas of my life in which I am disobedient to God's clearly revealed word? And if so, what does that say about the foundation or the lack thereof that I'm building on? Application point number one, examine yourself. Application point number two, assess your application. I'm talking a lot today about being doers of the word and not just hearing, but also doing. And so let me challenge you to assess your own application. Assess how you actually apply the word of God to your life. Here's one way to do it. This is just one suggestion. Think back through the last month or two of sermons that you've heard. If you regularly attend this church, maybe what you could do is this afternoon, you could read through Luke chapter 6. We started Luke chapter 6 on October 16th, and so that's basically three months of sermons in Luke chapter 6. And then as you're reading Luke chapter 6, I want you to think about how the sermons that were preached from this chapter have actually impacted your life. Now, not all sermons are going to be equally impactful for your sanctification. There's just some texts that kind of speak more directly to our hearts and our situations. And then there's some texts that speak less directly to our hearts and our situations. So I'm not saying that every single sermon that you've heard has to produce some measurable change in your life. I'm also not saying that sermons are the only means by which we're pressed to apply the word. Certainly not. But I do think that how we respond to sermons is indicative of our heart's general inclination to apply God's word. And so as you look over a few months of sermons, ask yourself, how has this chapter of the word of God, Luke chapter 6, how has Luke chapter 6 impacted me? 
Has it produced visible fruit in my life? Has it changed how I think about certain things? Or maybe you'd be honest and say, well, I enjoyed listening to some of those sermons and I was convicted when, uh, at certain points when I listened, but I didn't actually do anything about it. In which case, right, praise God for your honesty, but you're essentially admitting to the very thing that Jesus rebukes in this text, right, to hearing but not doing. And so application point number two, assess your application. Application point number three is to thank God for your trials. This application is a little different than the other two, but I think it's also important. The true child of God, the true disciple, the one who has built his house on the rock, well, he or she ought to thank God for every trial that God sends his or her way. Why? there's many reasons, but the one I specifically want to focus on is this. Consider the illustration of the two builders. Sunny weather, clear skies, that's great for both the wise builder and the foolish builder alike, because neither is tested, and so both come out great. And so sunny weather says nothing about how either house is going to hold up in the ultimate flood. Rather, it's the storms and the rains that are going to distinguish them from one another. It's the storms and the rains and the fact that the wise man's building can withstand all of those things in this life and still remain upright— well, that's the indicator that that building is indeed built on a solid foundation. And so it's trials. It's trials that God sends to us in this life. Disease and pain and suffering and betrayal and conflict and loss and grief. Whatever it is that draws us close to him that acts as a down payment of sorts, like a preview of sorts, that in the final judgment, at death, with Christ as our foundation, we're going to stand. Not because of our own righteousness, not because of our own good works, because we're inseparably united to Christ. And so believer, child of God, do you realize that every trial that you endure in this life in which God holds you fast, in which God keeps you depending on him, and you come out on the other side of that trial still trusting and depending on God, loving him more than when you started, do you realize that that itself is a great mercy of God that speaks to the ultimate mercy that he has already shown you in Christ? And so on that firm foundation of Christ, with him as your rock, with him as your intercessor, with him as your redeemer, with him as your savior, like you are going to be able to stand on that judgment day, face the ultimate flood of death and judgment because of who you are in Christ. 
Because he is your foundation. Because he has taken your sin and given you his perfect righteous record. Because you are united in him forever. And so as Spurgeon said, we have to learn to kiss the waves that throw us up against the rock of ages. We have to learn to kiss the waves that throw us up against the rock of ages. To bless God for the trials that show our dependence on him, that draw us near to him, and that prove to us that we have indeed built on the foundation that cannot be shaken, that is Christ Jesus. Here's how Peter put it. In this you rejoice. You rejoice in these trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believer, let's let's learn to thank God for our trials, to kiss the waves, that throw us up against the rock of Christ. Father, please help us. Lord, how foolish it would be for us to hear a word from this passage and then be hearers only and not doers. And so help us, by the grace of the Spirit, to apply these things for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.